Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you would remind us of the depths of your love. And as we see ways that we fail to love you and love each other, I pray that you would show us that by the mercy of your grace, we can draw near and love because you first loved us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, there's a few things I know. I know that Westside Church is a generous church. I know that many of you are very gifted and talented and giving of your time, of your resources, of the things that God has blessed you with to those around you. And so I chose this passage not because I think there is a lacking as a whole from this church, but because in our day and in our culture, there are so many things constantly pulling at our heartstrings, trying to remind us, trying to show us, trying to tell us, trying to sell us the lie that there is a better kingdom worth fighting for, worth preserving, worth protecting than God's kingdom. And so regardless of where you would put yourself on a scale on generosity, I think it's important to ask ourselves those tough questions about when it comes to understanding whose kingdom we're fighting for, whose kingdom we're serving, that we come with fresh eyes as we approach God's word this morning. We're going to be in James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. James 5, 1 through 6. Here's God's word. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is God's word. So a few years ago, America Online, who used to be you know, the king of the internet, decided to release the search history of 650,000 of their users. They thought this was a good idea because they could show and prove that they have a wide range of different kinds of people that use AOL, from housewives to working women, from young to old, from automobile enthusiasts to sports fanatics. And so they could show, hey, people, all kinds of people love and use AOL. They thought they could protect the identity of those 650,000 people by assigning them a number instead of a name. But it didn't take the New York Times very long to start putting names to those numbers as they looked at those searches and kind of put together the puzzle pieces to say, oh, this is this person living in this city. Now imagine, Westside, that tomorrow the search results of everything you have looked at on the internet were made public to everyone sitting here in this congregation. How would that make you feel? Don't answer that. What would that search reveal about your heart? 
What picture of you would those searches draw? What kinds of things would you be ashamed or embarrassed of? What James is drawing our attention to is where does our heart find value? What gives us worth? He tells us back in uh, chapter 1, verse 27, that true religion, that what it means to seek the Lord is found in visiting orphans and widows in their affliction and keeping oneself unstained from the world. Or to put it a little bit differently, we are to seek God's kingdom rather than our own kingdom. But as often is the case when we're confronted with this high calling, you Christians, if you've trusted Christ, you have this high calling of true religion, you're supposed to seek God's kingdom and not your own, is we say, wait a minute, but here's what I'd rather do. I'd rather see books like James or Proverbs or other scriptures as kind of nice kind of pearls of wisdom. And I'll come back to those occasionally and they'll remind me of things and that's good. Or we say, yeah, you're right, I do need to accomplish true religion, so I'm going to put it as a task list on my phone, on my email, and I'm going to just churn out true religion. I'm just going to be the best at achieving righteousness. And so I look good before God and man, or I've earned his favor, or I've made up for past mistakes. But what James is actually trying to do as he goes through the book of James, particularly as he hits chapter four and five, is to show us point by point how we all categorically fail at true religion. How none of us are achieving true religion. And so if you go through James, he talks about the words that we speak to each other, the favoritism we have for each other, the anger that we display, the way that we plan our days as if they're for ourselves and not for God. And here, he hones in on our wealth and riches, the things that glitter in our lives as we see contrasting kingdoms, the kingdom of self and the kingdom of God. And so what I want to to bring to our hearts this morning is for us to honestly ask, where am I fighting for the kingdom of God? And where is my heart still attached, still seeking that kingdom of self, or as we're going to call it, that kingdom of oppression? So he starts with this, come now, you rich. Now I want to pause, and before we dive in completely and get to kind of our main points, say this. When James is talking about, come now, you rich, and then he gives all these indictments, all these judgments, he is not saying, if you have more money than the person sitting next to you, these judgments are for you and not for them. Scripture makes it clear all over the place that it's not about how much you have, It's about what you do with it, how you feel about it, or what you desire if you don't have it. Or to say it more simply, what James is going to be talking about as he talks about wealth and riches is this. He says it is either an abuse of what you have or an attitude towards what you want. And so we just want to step aside for a second and say it's not about material who has more than others, although there could be greater temptation, but it's about Uh, the attitude about what you have or what you want. And so keeping that in mind, James leaps immediately into challenging words from the first verse as he talks about the kingdom of oppression 
that we live in when we seek these things. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. That doesn't start out on a, on a high note. It starts out on a judgment is coming note. And if you fall into these categories, then God's judgment is meant for you. You're going to be weeping. You're going to be crying out. You're going to be howling. Or as the Greek word, this is beautiful, onomatopoeia would say, oloozo. Okay, you don't have to repeat that. But it's basically, as you say that word, you're howling as you say it. That's what you're going to be doing if you fall into these categories. Judgment is coming. And he basically gives us four crimes that, that take place in this kingdom of oppression. When we're seeking wealth and material position, we will commit these four crimes in the kingdom of oppression, and they deserve judgment. Here's the first one. In verses 2 and 3, that we, we will see that the crime is hoarding for status and security. Hoarding for status and security. Verse 2 and 3 say, Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last day. In other words, that we, when we fall into this category, in this crime, in the kingdom of oppression, we are seeking, we are collecting, we are gathering, we are hoarding things for ourselves, for our kingdom, rather than for God's kingdom. James, no doubt, had in mind Jewish landowners. And as he would look at some of their gigantic estates, whether they were in the city or out in the countryside, he would see them grasping for more and more. The guy's field that hadn't been bought out yet, he wants that added to his. The next landlord over has more servants, so I need to gather a few more servants. The money I have, the resources I have, the gold that I've collected isn't enough, I need more. And why do we hoard? Why do we treasure things? Why do we collect things in our lives? We're usually doing it because we believe it brings us status, or it brings us value, or it brings us security. I'll be okay. I'll make it. I'll look good. I'll get that promotion. I'll be in a different social circle if I can just gather these things around myself. And it doesn't matter if it's a priceless art collection or if it's a hoarder who's treasuring newspaper articles and McDonald's wrappers. They're both seeking value and security. It might be my son who's just got his latest toy until he turns it over and sees all those pictures on the back of all the toys he doesn't have. And he immediately thinks, I need this to be satisfied. It might be my Amazon Prime wish list if I just had these things. I would have more value. I would have more security. And so hoarding gives us that sense until we realize, wait a minute, I can't take any of this with us. I can't take this with me when I'm gone. And James reminds us of that. In fact, he says three different things that we kind of collect and what's going to happen to each of those. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, and your gold and your silver have corroded. You can't take it with you. And so why do you treasure it and value it? Why do you build your kingdom in vain? In fact, Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 6, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. 
Or Ecclesiastes 5.10, I love this verse. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is vanity. And this is especially true in the last days, as James points out. Like, we're, we're in the last days. Jesus has come, and he's coming back. And more than people before Jesus came, we know that he's given us this promise And he is coming back. So what's the point of hoarding it? Like, we know that at some point, all of this is going to end. And there's going to be new heavens and new earth. And all that we're trying to build are going to be destroyed. And so judgment is coming when we hoard for status and security. That's the first crime. The second crime in the kingdom of oppression is not paying what is owed. Not paying what is owed. We see that in verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your field which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. So we see here, if we think back to the landlords, that literally these landlords are abusing, are committing fraud, are not paying what is owed to their servants and their laborers. They're either shortchanging them, or maybe because they've got them you know, in their hands, they, they have them in a place that they can't escape from, it's the only work that they have, maybe they're not paying them at all. And so not paying what is owed is a sign of oppression, the kingdom of self that is building for the gain of those landowners. But all of us have experienced not being paid what is owed either in doing it to others or in having it done to us or maybe even both. For example, it might be some of us are not fairly paid. We're underemployed. There might be a lack of being given vacation or fair wage that you're owned. Maybe it's in failing to tip or not tipping enough when we know that we should. It might be in the way inheritance is settled when we have a family member die and we fight and we battle for what we think is rightly ours even amongst family. Maybe it's not paying what is owed in failing to tithe or give to the church, give back to the kingdom. But here's what's cool about this. God does say judgment is coming. Judgment is coming if you live in the kingdom of oppression and do not pay what is owed. But he also says that he hears the voices of the oppressed, that they cry out and the Lord of hosts is listening. And the Lord of hosts is always used as a descriptor that God is with his hosts, aka his army, and he's ready to do battle. Judgment is coming when we don't pay what is owed. Thirdly, another crime in the kingdom of oppression is seeking luxury and self-indulgence. Verse five, you have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Now it's interesting. He starts, you have lived on the earth. A reminder, not literally that we're living on the earth because all of us are, but what he's saying here is that there is kingdom warfare happening all the time. And we're living for the kingdom of earth or we're living for the kingdom of heaven. You are living on the kingdom of earth. You're doing it for self-satisfaction. You're doing it for luxury and for self-indulgence. And James clearly communicates this is not just a material issue. This is a heart issue. Your hearts are being fattened for the slaughter. Judgment is coming when we seek luxury and self-indulgence. What good is luxury when we know it isn't going to last? And I don't know about you, but I can quote Mark 8, 36. And I believe it when it says, what good will it profit a man 
if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul. And yet when it comes to living that out in daily life, it gets very difficult because I know it doesn't profit me anything, but in that moment, it's nice to have a little luxury, a little self-indulgence. And this applies to thrift stores, to Virage Sale, to Craigslist. Those things can pull our heartstrings just as much as Fifth Avenue. Are you ready for me to get real? HGTV and Food Network can pull at my heartstrings just as easily as anything else. And caveat, those things are not in and of themselves bad things. If you want to remodel your bathroom, I'm not saying you are under the fiery judgment of God this morning. But I am saying we need to step back and evaluate why do we want to do those things? Because it's falling apart, because I want to be a better host, I want to open my home up, I want to take care of my family, or uh, I really need this to have meaning or value. There's a difference. And so which kingdom are we living for? And judgment is coming, your, your hearts are being fattened for slaughter. Like, that's pretty intense language. Okay, the fourth crime in the kingdom of oppression is the most intense. Verse six, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. I call this crime the do whatever it takes crime. Because we're, we're, going, we're willing to go to any length to get what we want for our kingdom even murder. And as James was thinking about the local churches, he was probably not thinking about all of them running around and murdering each other left and right to get what they want. But he also mentions murder a couple sections earlier when he's talking about the way they argue amongst each other. And so what James is really pointing to is we're willing to do whatever it takes to get what we want. And it rarely extends to murder in our circles, but it can. And if you turn on the news for just a few minutes and you find out why did this murder or crime take place, chances are it's connected to this in some way. Grasping, seeking, clinging to the things that we think we deserve, the things that we want to build our kingdom. Judgment is coming for that. Following your heart does not result in what we want. Disney never told us that following your heart was a terrible lie that was worthy of the judgment of God. But the Bible does. So as we kind of put these things together, as we step back and summarize the kingdom of oppression, this is a message that all of us need. We need to be reminded that when we're fighting for our kingdom, it will inevitably lead us to oppressing others. It cannot help but do that. Because when I want what I want to build my kingdom, Jason will step on that in some way. Amy will step on that in some way. It is inevitable. Because this is what I want and what Jason wants might interfere with what I want and then what do I do? Our kingdoms are now at war with each other. And so I will use political, social, economic, and even legal battles to win my war. And that's what we see James describing here. Fraud, murder, oppression, over and over. So we can look on this list of crimes. We can look at the kingdom of oppression and we can say, man, you know, that's bad. I I should probably work on those areas a little bit more. There's probably a few places I'm still fighting for the kingdom of self than the kingdom of God. Or we can step back and say, 
This is a serious list of things that when I participate in, leads me to a place of oppressing myself and others around me and seeking my good instead of God's. And it's worthy of God's judgment. Slaughter, invading armies, corrosion that speaks against us and the fires of hell. And go, wow, God, I come to you. I need you. I repent of these things. But guess what? There's good news. There's another kingdom. The kingdom of oppression should leave us in a place of saying, I am unworthy. I fight for my kingdom. I need you desperately. Lord, what can I do? And our second point is to remember, remember in the midst of that, that there is a kingdom of freedom. There is a kingdom of oppression, but Christians, there is also a kingdom of freedom. And we have to be honest with our hearts to recognize that we need this kingdom of freedom and the kingdom of self isn't cutting it. Probably the linchpin verse in the book of James is chapter four, verse seven, or verse six. Chapter four, verse six, where it says this, he gives more grace. Therefore, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And in verse 10, it says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. How do we find the kingdom of freedom? How do we we remember that we're fighting for the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of self? What happens when we're oppressing people around us? What do we do? We humble ourselves and say, it is not up to me. It is not by my will. It is not by my strength. It is about you and your kingdom and your strength. And what is gonna happen when these verses of judgment are weighing down on me? You give more grace. Because of the work and person of Christ, if you have trusted him, these judgments are not for you. You are in him, and you belong to a far greater kingdom, a kingdom worth fighting for, a kingdom that will last. Remember, there is a kingdom of freedom found not in performance, but in trust. Faith works. Faith works. What I mean by that is when we come to God in humility, and by the way, I define humility not as, oh, woe is me, I'm the worst. I don't define humility by, oh man, I really screwed up. I better be better this week. I define humility as looking up. What does that mean? Instead of looking down at my kingdom and everyone in it, that are my minions, and saying, ah, look at, look at this thing that I have to figure out, look at this thing that I have to fix, look at where I have to find my value, where people become either vehicles to get what I want, or obstacles to get in my way, I look up. I say, God, it's not about what I want, it's not about what I do, it's about you and your plan and your kingdom. Use me, I pray. That's humility. Humility is looking up. When we humble ourselves, when we recognize it's about trust, this transforms us. A beautiful picture of this is Eustace Eustace Clarence Scrub from the voyage of the Don Treader. His name was so bad he almost deserved it. And as he finds himself falling asleep on a hoard of dragon treasure, 
thinking greedy dragon thoughts, having put this armband, this bracelet on himself, he wakes up a dragon. He wakes up in pain because this thing is now stuck on his arm and he realizes I have really screwed up. And his first thought, like our own, is I better fix this. I better deal with this. And so he uses his dragon claws and he scratches at his scales and he peels layer after layer after layer off only to find that it just goes deeper and deeper and he can't fix himself. It's not until Aslan, the Christ figure, the mighty lion shows up on the scene and says, follow me. Eustace trusts him. And those lion claws begin to dig in deeper than he ever thought possible to the core of his being. And it is more painful than he ever imagined, but more beautiful and freeing than he ever imagined that he finds himself returned to the state of a boy. What a beautiful picture of the gospel that we cannot fix ourselves but Christ desires to transform us and heal us. That judgment for the kingdom of oppression is not meant for us. So why do we still go back to it? Why do we still live there? Let us instead seek the kingdom of freedom. I want to revisit those four crimes in the kingdom of oppression in light of grace in the kingdom of freedom. The kingdom of oppression tells us that we need to hoard for status and security. The kingdom of freedom says you are freed to not hoard anymore because you have everything that you need. You have been given everything. Why do you need to collect things? Why do you need to hoard? Why do you need to find your value and security in your bank account, in your possessions, in the things you don't have yet? Because you have everything in Christ. You are an adopted child of the king. You have a right to all of the inheritance of Jesus Christ right now. We don't have to wait. We are his. We are provided for. We are cared for. We are loved and cherished even when we fail. And so why can't we trust that? You don't need to hoard because you have been given everything. The second crime in the kingdom of of oppression is not paying what is owed. In the kingdom of freedom, you are freed to live and give generously because you have been given everything generously. You can be generous with the things that you have. You can trust that I can give to the church this month when it doesn't feel like it. Or that person that's on hard times, I can help them and trust that God is going to care for me. I don't have to shortchange the people in my life hoping that I have enough because I have given myself enough, but because he has given me enough abundantly. We just went through 1 John. How many times does the word abundantly show up? Abounding show up over and over and over. In the kingdom of oppression, we we need to seek our own luxury and self-indulgence. But in the kingdom of freedom, you are freed from providing your own luxury and self-indulgence. You don't have to fill the holes in your heart. You don't have to fuel that, that emptiness because you are promised God's provision. He says he will provide. Do we believe that? Do we trust that? In the kingdom of oppression, you have to have a do whatever it takes mentality. Because if you don't do it, no one will. In the kingdom of freedom, you are freed. 
You are freed from doing whatever it takes. You are freed from having to murder to get what you want. You are freed by the murder of an innocent man. You are freed by the murder of an innocent man that Christ became flesh, that God sent his only son to die for you and for me, that we can have this kingdom of freedom, that we can belong to a far better world, that we don't have to seek our own. And I've added a fifth, a fifth thing that's important to remember in the kingdom of freedom. Because when you are the one being oppressed, when you are the one being oppressed, you need to remember that there is hope because God will make it right. God will make it right. What marks your life? What marks my life? Generosity or scroogery? Loose hands or clenched fists? Heart and hands for those oppressed and burdened around us and by us? Or a heart and hand for ourselves? This topic was not a new topic to James when he wrote about it. In fact, this idea of kingdom of oppression versus the kingdom of God is a theme that comes up again and again in the Old Testament. The prophets again and again are reminding kings and religious leaders, don't live in the kingdom of oppression. God hates that. And in Micah 6, 8, this beautiful verse about what does God want, if we come back to what is true religion as we close, what does God really desire for us? Micah 6, 8 tells us, he has told you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God? Let me pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, as we look down places in our lives at our kingdom, in ways that we still desire to build that. Even when we see it crumbling, even though we know it won't last, even when it hurts other people, God, forgive us. We know that we are called instead to look up to you. For those of us who are trusting Christ as our savior, we know that means that we repent. And as James 4, 6 reminds us, you give more grace. And we thank you that if we are in Christ, we are a new creation and called to a new kingdom and we do not need to fear your judgment. And yet our heartstrings are still pulled by this kingdom of self, by this kingdom of oppression. So strengthen us. Remind us of the gospel. Remind us of the many ways that we are free in the kingdom of freedom that you have given us. Remind us that we can be generous, that we can love, that we can serve those around us instead of ourselves because you are gonna provide and care for us. And Lord, if, if there are those who haven't trusted you, if there are those who say, I'm still not sure that the kingdom of God is better than this kingdom that I'm building, I pray that you would work in their hearts even now, that as we come to the Lord's table and remember that what you have done on the cross frees us and we can trust you. That there are those here that would trust you for the first time this morning.
And that for the rest of, of you, the, of us, that we would trust you again and again and again. Because though we are weak, you are strong. And your love endures forever. We pray all these things in Christ's name and for your glory. Amen.